Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I had to figure it out. So that was like my whole body completely malfunctioning. And every day was a different experience, a different malfunction. And, uh, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. So it was like being constant, you know, um, stress of, you don't know what the next day brings you. And the next day may be the end of you and not knowing that. And you have no control over it. Conscious perfection, not noticing the actions that we're taking or overthinking them. In this episode, I interview Ravi Mehta, a master of flow. He has an incredible story and a varied life experience that shapes, in my opinion, a modern Renaissance man. He's the co-founder of Helios Entertainment, a 3D game development company that pioneered virtual reality for education in the late 90s. He's managing director of Meta Group, an infrastructure company, a published author, and one of Wall Street Journal's Men of the Year. Ravi was diagnosed with Lyme disease. Faced with limited options, he turned to alternative systems to treat himself. Through rigorous and scientific efforts, he essentially cured himself and has been asymptomatic for years. He attributes this to a deeper exploration of his own fear and flow states, and now travels the world teaching others how to access their own flow through an immersive experience called Flow Piano Sound Bath. I reconnected with Ravi at his Flow Piano Sound Bath event in Los Angeles the night before recording this episode. I decided to follow my own flow when I realized I needed to interview him. At this time, Look Up was completely novel. I had no clue what the topic of my show would be nor the format. This is a longer episode than the others, but I've listened to it and I feel like removing any of the content would be a disservice to you all. We go deep on a broad range of subjects and I'm extremely grateful that he agreed to record with me on a whim. We dive into his battle with Lyme disease, <clears throat> discuss how people learn, explore the differences between art and entrepreneurship, identify the power of limiting screen time, and Robbie teaches me how we all can access our state of flow. I hope you all enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Robbie. So without further ado, Robbie Mehta. Hey Robbie, how are you? Good Mark, how are you? Uh, so I guess for starters, I'd love if, if maybe you can tell people a little bit about yourself, your background. Yeah, sure. So I'm an engineer by trade, a civil engineer. I went to school, got my undergrad master's in that, and you know, also pursued my MBA as well. And um, grew up in a family business where we build infrastructure um, that my father started. So we've been building highways, roads, bridges, airports, and rail systems for and water systems for about 40 years now. And I used to oversee and CEO of that company. And um, then I took a sabbatical because I got interested in tech and started a uh, VR company or I got pulled into a VR company my friend started and mm. became a essentially executive co-founder and principal there. And, um, and what was the it, name of that company? Called Modus. And we were doing military training and simulation systems. So we got in this, oh, cool. we got really good at um, 
at how people learning how people learn essentially and we you know and how people perceive so we take content that was say from the army that took eight months of training down to eight weeks uh, while boosting our learning protocols by 80%. So he's kind of spawned a field I call accelerated learning, you know, mm. and how to transfer knowledge more efficiently and got really good at that. And um, so I learned a lot just from all these algorithms and protocols that we developed and techniques we developed around how to most efficiently take knowledge from A and move it into either an individual or a large group of people, you know. And, uh, and then, mm. we, you know, and then after that, what, what are some what are some learnings from that? Well, there are four basic protocols. There's retention, recall, application, and transfer. So okay. retention is how much information you retain when receiving it. And we found that you know, people will obviously receive information. Now, this is in late 90s, right? So this stuff was really novel back then. Oh, wow. You know, so this is you know, when we're pioneering VR. We used VR uh, back then and uh, introduced the first game engine into the Army um, back then. So we did a lot of pioneering. Uh, and this is back when like 56K modems or 128 DSLs were the norm. Oh, wow. so we were like doing serious <laughs> parallel streaming stuff. Like we invented a lot of cool tech to make it really efficient to have multiple locations around the world to, um, you know, participate in a, in a serious, what we call serious games, uh, you know, in a simulation together. And, uh, so, um, yeah, but the, the retention application, I'm sorry, retention, recall application transfer retention is how much information retained recall is, how quickly you can recall that information, if you can recall it at all, upon demand. Uh, applications, how do you apply that information and, and transfers, how can you transfer that information from point A to point B? So in learning, you know, they, and it's usually in that order, right? So the when you get to high proficiencies of transfer, that means you have to have the ability to retain, recall, and apply it in a really efficient way for you to, to be able to transfer that knowledge to somebody else. So it's almost mm -hmm. like teaching is a final stage of learning. Because mm. if you don't, if, if you can't teach it to somebody else, then you haven't learned it or simplified it enough to make it digestible for you. And then therefore to move that same, you know, knowledge into somebody else. So, so we would really, um, we created, you know, back then we were doing computer-based training stuff. We were pioneering. So we would take information and we'd learn how learner was learning. And then we'd repurpose information on the fly and feed it back to them in the way most digestible of them. That's how we were able to, boost everyone's learning protocols by 80% with 80% less time wow. just because we were really personalizing learning um, based on how they learned best. So if one, mm. you know, one person, you know, was very visual, we feed them more pictures. If another was better with language and reading, we'd feed them more text, you know, um, but it's all like pulled from this really interesting database structure we created that kind of was, we're trying to model the how the human mind works. We had a or object-oriented database on the top and then a relational wow. database on the bottom. It's a parking, kind of like your parking lot, like your conscious and your subconscious mind. It's like, like Neuralink well before. Yeah, yeah. This is like, this is all the early <laughs> stages of all this stuff, setting the foundations and, you know, for what's happening now. Mm. But it was super cool back then. I mean, we um, did some cool stuff. And then, then it moved into, you know, doing a lot of military tech transfer stuff. We, uh, uh, worked with different military contractors and national labs and spin out companies. And mm. so I had like this really interesting tech and engineering kind of business career. Um, at one point I got invited to participate in the New York city 2012 Olympics. Uh, I moved there up to New York and worked on, um, I worked on their cultural Olympiad campaign. So they had a line item as 
before that, I was actually working on this idea. I came up with it called Gateway to the World, where I had all these Jesusic domes and wanted to place them in different parts of the city. And we had all these countries, 100 and some countries, that were interested in featuring their top visual artists or musicians or fashion designers or performers. Where was, where was the 2012 Olympics? It ended up being in London, but New York City was the top, oh. the last, in the final bids. So cool. when they're bidding for this, so we're putting together this whole concept around a cultural Olympia campaign called Gateway to the World, like, which was an idea I came up with. And and after a while, they heard about it. I was like, you know, trying to get all these groups on board and whatnot. And and they asked if I want to make that the cultural Olympia campaign. So I said, sure. So um, so I became the cultural Olympia campaign. <laughs> for, for <laughs> and then through that process, I um, met so many people and it was such a big platform, you know, even before, even if we didn't win those three years leading up to it, I got connected to so many people, which is super cool. Of course. And uh, I learned a lot about just what makes people move and inspire. And I also learned a lot about how culture is really a function of um, like people's circumstances and past and then, and then what they want to, you know, what their traditions want to move them forward, you know, towards mm. um, in the future. So there's there's a lot of um, interesting cultural aspect. They had 104 countries, you know, sharing like all their top artists and musicians, and you know, we, we called it the nine muses of modern culture, which were visual arts, music, performing arts, film, media, literature, fashion, design, and food. So I got the top of the top of the world from all those nine areas. And your, and, and your role was coordinating. I was a, I was a creative curating. director, producer. I was curating and producing that whole thing. So wow. I was, I was the head so of you that. met hundreds, hundreds of artists, musicians. Oh, yeah, or and, seen and their work because they would send me all their work. And all of these had to be alive and breathing. So they couldn't be like past dead. You know, they had to be modern day, alive, breathing, top artists, musicians, you know, whatever, designers. That's incredible. Yeah, so I got fed with all this creative um I know, creative ideas from around the world, which really blew my mind open. And some of the stuff you look at is just like, wow, you're just like <laughs> immersed in so much beauty or so much exotic, you know, um, expression. And um, it really kind of gave me a personal database of mm. ideas that I could use and rejig and pur- pull from and, you know, push and pull. And also gave me perspective like, oh, wow, you know, I could be an artist. And this is why I'm an engineer and business guy, right? And, you know, like, oh, this is because you see so much, you get the bug. You're like, oh, I could create stuff. And then you, now I'm like one of the few people on the planet that has seen this much content, you know, from around the world. Now, um, as curiosity, just taking a step back, is this, is this a role that you lobbied for and really wanted? Or is this a role that you kind of fell I, into? No, I fell into it because I had this idea of creating this gateway to the world idea. Mm. And which is something I just wanted. It was my idea that I wanted. Is like, oh, I want to get these countries to feature their things in you know my domes, and you know, you know, one dome they could rent out and be the Swiss dome. They'll do like a wine tasting or or, or a food tasting, and then a culinary tasting. And another dome might be the French dome, and they're doing some kind of fashion show. And another dome, the India dome, they might have some kind of dance presentation. You know, and mm. so it's like Epcot City across New York, or not cool. Epcot City, but Epcot, this is Epcot, like rolled across New York to create like a. You kind of world's fair, and you submit, yeah. and so you submitted to the. I didn't board. submit it. No, no, they just heard about what I was doing. They invited me to come meet with them, and and uh, they say, "Look, we have this, you know, line item uh, mm. that's for a culture Olympia campaign, and we've been hearing about what you're trying to do." They asked, "Hey, what if we told you we have a platform for you to do that?" 
and and you were like of course this is <laughs> well no first i'm like okay they want to take over my idea so then, uh -huh. so then i'm like well tell me more and you know and i wanted to learn more about what they're saying and what that meant and you know pretty much in the end it was like okay we have this line item we have this budget and you have full creative freedom to fulfill that under you know these legal guidelines so like yeah so then i was like sure yeah so that made sense and then so anyway so i that was really my turning point of you know learning how powerful their arts could be to create to communicate culture mm. and what i found like working with the un and kind of being in that world was that most i'd say 95 percent of disagreements or misunderstandings are because of people not spending enough time to understand the other person's culture and even within our own culture, their subculture. So if people actually try to understand the culture, I think most things can be resolved. That's when I discovered that. And, so, And what, I mean, if you don't mind for, for the listeners, like what, um, what is your cultural background? How do you identify I mean, culturally? My family is from India. Mm. So my, my dad um, and mom moved here from India. So, you know, they came here with probably a hundred dollars in their pocket. Wow. Yeah, to start over. And my dad was doing really well in Bombay. I'm from Bombay. Okay. And, um, or Mumbai now. But, uh, so he was kind of the city engineer for mm -hmm. one of the big municipalities within Bombay. And, uh, when he came over, he had to start over. And so he's back in, you know, doing construction work. You and know. You, were you born in the U.S.? Yeah, I was born in the U.S. So okay. I was born, my dad was here. I was born five years after my dad came over. Okay. So, and my mom, my mom followed six months later, and then they married here in the U.S. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, so they were engaged there. They married here, and you know, I kept getting, you know, in engineering construction, you go from project to project. So when a project's done, you get laid off unless there's another one lined up, or you find another project somewhere else, and you just kind of hop that way. So, uh, well, at least in, at that time, in the on the construction services side, um, so he kept getting laid off, and then rehired, and laid off, and rehired, and eventually. He decided, you know, I'm tired of being laid off and I'm about to have a kid. So I'm going to start this company. So him and my mom started our family. Business. Oh, it's, a, it's a family business started by your parents together. Yeah. yeah. That's so beautiful. How, I mean, what did you learn from your two parents working together like that? Do you think there's anything? Oh yeah. A lot. That you can pull out so of? much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, working with family members is tough in certain cases, but also super rewarding. And like, you know, some of the, a lot of cases, some of the people you could really trust, you know, because mm -hmm. they've been part of your journey and, you know, with common goals and, you know, and, and Indian families are very nuclear. So we work as a team in general, mm -hmm. I noticed like in America, you know, the U S families are very, you know, fiercely independent, individualistic. Right. So, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, like, gosh, in, in the U S the, uh, you know, parents can't wait to get their kids out of their house at 18 <laughs> you know, to go to college and they feel free. Well, you know. it depends. Jewish moms want to keep us there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the same with Indian moms. So Indian moms <laughs> don't want us to leave ever. Like, even in India, like in India, even the married couples that move in, you know, stay with the parents until they start yeah. having kids, then they move out of their own house, into their own house. So you're married, you know, you're 20s or 30, whatever, you're still living at home. And they love that. So, Jewish moms and Indian moms are so <laughs> there's yeah, some lot, cultural there's sharing. Some cultural shift, yeah, cultural sharing there. But uh yeah, but in America it's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for them to have the house at 18 and then yeah. you get a job and move on, you know, get your own apartment, whatever else. So so um And then and then American children repay the favor 
um, by, you know, putting our, our grandparents in nursing homes rather than, <laughs> you know, like been, right, three generations under one roof, like in definitely in China and, uh, and in, in India. India well. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have, I don't even know if we have nursing homes in India yet, but, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's totally different. It's a totally different way of yeah, family. Like it's, uh, yeah. So it's just a different, and, you know, they both have their pros and cons. I mean, like when you're individualistic and very focused on yourself versus family, you know, you could go much further. You're not being held back. Um, it's not everyone does, but, um, but when you have a family or you have a nuclear stuff, you actually have way more support, higher chance of success. So, so it's kind of trade-offs, right? So, yeah. And it can be, I think it can be isolating, you know, to not have that, that nuclear family support. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, you know, you literally on your age, go, you know, go do your thing. Right. Yeah. So So then you develop other families, right. You develop friends and whatever. And, you know, and, um, but eventually somehow people all, a lot of people always end up back home, especially the millennial generation, right? Yeah. They get out there and they realize, okay, I don't have as much, you know, they run out of money and then they come back home. <laughs> I was going to say that. That's, you know? that's, that's another, uh, that's another topic right. for another day about yeah. millennials and how we don't own homes and yeah. more of us are moving in with our parents, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. I don't know if that's, you know, that might be the next, the next shift in American culture is we'll see more right. families staying together. Yeah. My, well, my that's a, that's a number of reasons for that. I mean, that's just a capitalistic structural, um, like, a like a, like a system, not only say system failure, but a system bug mm-hmm. in our current economic capitalistic system. Right. Which is why that's happening. I mean, inflation rate rising faster than wages, Mm-hmm. you know, which causes instead of one parent not working to support a family. Now two parents have to work, you know, support a family. And now the two parents are working to support a family and just themselves and the kid can't get a job. Then now three, you know, so yeah. it's increased. And then when two people are working, then the kids are off partying or with drugs again, and, you know, wrapped it with the wrong crowds. Mm. Then you start seeing a family degradation, you know, take place. And, and it's hard to recover from that. Now the kids are in drugs. The parents are like trying to, you know, keep everything afloat. You know, by both being working and no one's there watching, you know, or guiding, you know, yeah. the kids. And then, so the kids have to learn to be independent even earlier. But how could they if if they are not in the right environment, you know? So, so you see families in this country starting to not, you know, be as coherent as they were you know, in the 50s or 60s or 40s or whatever. Mm. And that's purely... a economic i mean i'd say econ- the economic structure is what's driving that culture shift yeah so it's interesting how different things can influence culture you know economics being a big thing yeah absolutely i mean i definitely i definitely see a trend my, my sister you know uh-huh. moved back in with with my parents you know um and actually i think my niece was born while my sister and her husband lived with my parents i think it's you know it's harder to um, you know, to get started, it's harder to launch. And that idea of the American dream of we're going to kind of surpass our parents, at least through, you know, economic means, I think is slowly fading away a little bit in this country. People you yeah. know, are, are concerned that they might not have a better, quote unquote, air, air quotes, better life right. uh, than their parents economically now. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it's crazy how that shifted. But I guess going back to um, you know, to culture and and where you're from. So you grew up in in a traditionally Indian household, but in the United States. Yeah, traditionally, I would say we're traditional. My parents tend to be not traditional from most Indian, like the Indian culture. Okay. Like, you know, but uh, yeah, they had a love marriage. They didn't have an arranged marriage. Oh so, wow! So they dated actually for three years secretly before they decided to get married. Is that why they left? 
No, no, my dad just heard it was this during the Vietnam War. So there's a what they call a brain drain. So they're trying to import engineers and doctors. Got it. And he was one of those qualified people that they wanted to bring over. So thought it'd be a cool adventure. And yes. uh, so he, he, he was in it for the adventure and, uh, and then my mom followed him. So that's so cool. So, so not traditional, not traditional in the sense it wasn't an arranged marriage. Yeah. They, they tend to be on, you know, if you look at the traditional, you know, scale in their culture from where they grew up, they're more on the rebellion side, mm. but their rebellion side is still very conservative for what I am, yeah. <laughs> like, and, you know, my, in my lifestyle. So, <laughs> so. That's another trend. Yeah, yeah. Less and less conservative as, yeah, yeah. as the years go on. Yeah, depending on, it's all relative, right? So yeah. conservatism and liberalism is super relative. So, so, okay. Going again, just taking it back. So now you're, you're kind of working for the New York Olympics bid. Yeah, I'm part of the bid. I'm just I'm I'm working on that that area, developing that concept of cultural Olympic campaign, what that would look like, and and um, that was super fun. Uh, I just got exposed to so many things, and that really, yeah, that was that is probably the beginning of my artist career, so to speak, or shifted me and showed me or inspired me. Kind of like when you know before that I was in you know, around a bunch of entrepreneurs and going to these entrepreneurial conferences that gave me the entrepreneurial bug. And mm. that's why I moved into from being engineer, family business owner or operator to being an entrepreneur and then entrepreneur to being an artist. So I, I feel that entrepreneurship in a way is like art. Yeah. Yeah. And anything creation. Exactly. Anything creation, but it's a different form. It's a different, it's a different, mindset mm. how's so it, how's it differ so so I look at when i look at the art world it's like forms of expression you know so um and there's overlap there's things of overlap but the nuances that dif- differentiate the two is forms of expression from an individual sometimes a group but usually an individual whether it's a music piece you know sometimes you have collaborators and whatnot mm. um or a dance piece or performance or the design or fashion or architecture, you know, all, all those things where being an entrepreneur, building a company, there's a lot of management, mm. uh, as a part of that, you know, you still have the common marketing, this, and that, but the creation part is like, okay, I'm going to create a platform that's going to do this, this, and this, and this, and, you know, this is going to be in service of people to use. Right. Or I'm going to, you know, like Uber or, yeah. Google that like this is like a plat these are platforms that other people can use and then they add some artistic flair to it or you know give it a creative bend. But it's more utility tend you know, startups tend to be more utility focused versus just pure free creative expression, yeah, focus. So it's a different area of the brain you tap into. At least I noticed that. Like when I'm in the my cause I do both. Yeah. So I can notice I notice the difference in me. Like it's uh when I'm in you know, engineering utility mind, utility creation mind, you know, it's very analytical. It's very, um, very specific, you know, very detailed, like highly detailed. And in the way of like, like A has to lead to B, which has to lead to C, which has to lead to D, you know, it has to be I see. very specifically designed for it to work. Because, because when you said detailed, I was, you know, thinking about. Arts detail too. You exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so, I mean, so I'm trying to think of the right words, but uh, it's like, it's algorithm. It's algorithmic. Like at least when we're designing roads, mm-hmm. you know, we're creating a road, right? So, and, th- and there is some, you know, creative room 
to, you know, to say, okay, maybe you curve it this way or, you know, or bridge even like, okay, maybe you go from suspension bridge to this bridge, but, but the majority of the thought ends up being in how to keep it from falling down. Would you, would you agree with this? I think what I'm, what I'm hearing is that maybe being an entrepreneur is more outcome driven, whereas being an artist is more about the process of creating. Yeah. That's a great way of describing it. Yeah. I think, yeah. Being an entrepreneur is you gotta, well, if you're an entrepreneur with investors money, you gotta, your focus is returning the investor's money with yeah. a return, right? As part, in addition to putting something together that you're, you know, that consumers would like, or, or your, you know, whoever your consumer, or your, your buyers are, are, um, which is how you return money. Mm. So there's a machine, you know, if you're creating art, you know, you, you need to probably return money and do these things, whatever, but the process of creation you know, you don't have lives at risk in a lot of cases, at least the things I've been involved with, you know, if a bridge yeah. falls and people die, you know, or, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> or if a festival fails. Yeah, yeah, festival fails and people get pissed off. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so in this case, it's just, it's just a different mindset. There's a different mindset, at least mm. when I start. So when I'm playing the piano and doing performance, I'm in a different state than I am when I'm, you know, building a business around a piano. Here's another difference. Like when I'm creating art, uh, whether it's music or I'm writing or authoring or visual arts, um, whatever it is, I'm, you know, a lot of it's coming from a different part of my body also, like a different level, mm. like my heart, my soul area. It's like, it's more, more soul-stirring type of creation. Where if I'm creating a platform or a business, it's more mental, it's more intellectual. Yes. So, so it's more in my head versus kind of down here, my chest, heart, and soul area. So, and I can feel the difference. Like, do you, do you believe that the two can be aligned either through art and or business? Yeah, they should be. I mean, ideally, it's not like it's all there, yeah. or, or all in one or all in the other. It, it, they're it's both. They're both active. I'm just saying the majority, like one, tends to be more dominant than the other, Got depending it. on what you're doing at what. And what stage it's at, you know. So if you move in a creative process, some people are fully in the creative process as a creative director. They're constantly creating, like a filmmaker. You know, they're more in that space. You know, they still got to manage a budget, so mm-hmm. they got to move back and forth. But the majority of their time is spent down there. You know, and you know, obviously they're using their brain to think and process and you know, ideate and all that stuff. But I'm just, it's just where the energy centers are more active. Is what I find. So. Um, so yeah, it's just a different, you know, expressions and, you know, the expressions tend to be in form of products or experiences, Yeah, you know, where platforms are more persistent, you know, it's not just platform. It could have an engineering business like we did, you know, but it's still like a machine that you, you know, you have a bunch of people running, you know, versus something that kind of stands on its own. And machines are more, machines are more, mind, are more mental, more kind of intellectually driven or, or numbers driven or process driven. Well, engi- if you think of a machine, an engineer builds machine, right? So if yeah. you're a business, businessmen are, you know, human, en- human capital engineers, right? So, mm-hmm. or human resource engineers, they're just resource engineers. So they have to manage a bunch of resources to create an outcome. So a, create a product of some, something of value, not even a product could be a service, but something. And, of value. and you're not, and I think you're, you're not saying that there's not art in that. There is art. Oh, in there's that. art. There yeah. Yeah. The element. There is heart in that often, especially Absolutely. if there's an entrepreneur that's passionate about oh, a cause, but it's more, you need the faculties just, of the mind. It's just to, a different, fa- you're just using different parts of your brain. That's what I'm saying. Or it. different parts of different, you know, the, an artistic creative process pulls from different resources in your mind and heart. An mm-hmm. entrepreneurial process does something similar, and there's overlap. 
for sure. But it pulls from different. And areas. I think the reason why I'm really like pulling at this is because I think I romanticize about the, you know, the entrepreneur that has the heart center kind of mission driven focus, thinking about the customer, thinking about all the stakeholders, right? Yeah. For example, I, I know you work on climate change, right? Um, you know, that is really like a mission driven focus that I think comes from a desire to, um, you know, to make the world better right. for others. And yet it's, of course, we need our intellectual faculties to get it done. So, so it's it's interesting to hear kind of the separateness. Maybe it's also because I've been an entrepreneur in the past, and you know, I, I feel like um, I can see how jumping from entrepreneurship to art, right, is uh, it's it's not as as wide of a gap, I think, as maybe jumping from you know just being an engineer specifically to art, or uh, I don't know. We have an engineering, we're create. You know, we have we still use creative judgment and tools and you know it's just uh how much of it like when you're creating an art piece it's more creative versus engineering a lot of it's prescribed mm. you know you know these things work so you're just taking these things and reassembling and rearranging them till it fits the plan or whatever you're trying to outcome focus or whatever outcome you're focused on but it's just a spectrum right it's just mm. a spectrum of creative versus analytical yeah. and some say right and left brain i don't know if that's yeah. still a, yeah. a framework I mean, a lot of people refer to it as very, it's not accurate, but yeah, yeah it's, I was uh, going to say, I don't you know, we use all parts of our brain all the time, but, um, but yeah, but the idea is like, you know, if you're analytical, you know, you're far, you know, you're on the right and if you're creative, you're on the left is kind of how I look at it. So, um, so you, so you become an artist, you're meeting with all these creatives and I imbibe, and just and like, you're just like <laughs> sponging yeah. it up. Yeah. That's kind of what happened. And it kind of opened up this, and I've always loved art. So I've always loved yeah. music. I've always loved, you know, seeing artwork. And I love, I've always loved, you know, I saw Circus Soleil my very first time, like always dreamed like, gosh, what, God, how amazing would it be to create a show like that? Yeah. And like how complicated it would be. Even when I was listening to like some of my favorite bands on, you know, um, back in the day, like all the layers, like, I don't know how to, like it blew my mind, like that people could actually create things mm-hmm. like that. And then years later, found myself creating these types of things, shows and music and, you know, visual art pieces and things like that, that um, I was able to dissect the layers, like, like, oh, here's a drum layer, here's a mm. string layer. So I was able to pull it apart in my head to see how they constructed it. And that's just pure, I think that's just because I'm an engineer and I think that way, but um, it, it reminds general, it remi- what you just described reminds me of what you said earlier about the way that we learn and it's not until we can teach that we've truly learned something because we can simplify simplify it and distill it down. And this art, like a song, for example, is so complex with so many different moving pieces and parts. And you can peel the layers, as you said, yeah. and yet it comes across so simply, yeah, so smoothly. Right. I think that's, that's the idea. It needs to be, it needs to, you know, your mind or body needs to digest it, right? And so it needs to absorb it, mm-hmm. to process it, to engage it, to, to actually understand appreciate it so so as all these things come together in harmony which is where mm. harmony comes in right and then and, and you see the reaction the human reaction or any you know even be a plant reacting to it, whatever the reaction is you see the reaction to it that it becomes it's organized in such or composed in such a way arranged in such a way that it evokes feeling mm. or an emotion or a state and um then you know that it, it was done, you know, well. Do plants respond to music? Yeah. 
Wow. Oh, yeah, there are studies where you play classical music to a plant. It grows. I forgot what the study was, but I remember reading that a long time ago. And yeah, so just playing classical music to plants, what, you know, the plants were growing healthier. Or I talk to my plants. Yeah, that does too. <laughs> music, you know, um, talk, communicating with them. You know, mm-hmm. and, and actually there's a study done that people that talk to their plants versus people that, you know, verbally abuse their plants, verbally abuse plants would die quicker. Oh. or deteriorate quicker than those that talk to them with love and, you know, feeling and emotion. And um, same with music. You know, that was another one. There's another, there's all sorts of studies with plants. It's super interesting. That's a whole world of really interesting studies um, of how plants respond and react to things, even light frequencies, mm-hmm. like not for, blocked from sunlight, but using certain frequencies can accelerate their growth, you know, or sound frequencies. There's so much to learn from them. Like one of my favorite things about planet earth, I don't do you watch planet earth. Uh, so it's the show on, on Netflix, but it was like when HD TVs came out, it was like the coolest thing ever planet earth. You yeah. know, you could see like in slow motion, like the happenings of, of the world kind of firsthand, like you spot a snow leopard firsthand or whatever, but they do this thing where they basically, they film plants, but they speed it up. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they'll speed it up like a thousand times. Oh yeah. So you see the way like that the vines grow and kind of yeah. communicate with one another and, yeah. and the leaves are like talking. Right. And yeah. it's just happening in such slow motion that we don't even realize it. Right. That's cool. So, so going back to, you know, your transition from entrepreneur to artist, um, how did that manifest itself? What did you start doing? Well, I bought a game company um, mm-hmm. and we developed a, like a cool game engine platform, make it really easy for independent game developers to build games. And so I started producing games and as part of that process. So, we, so game, game design and game development is so interesting. It's so fun. It's so complex because mm. like even in, like when you're, you know, what's fun about game design is it goes, it took me back to my virtual reality days at Modus because I, um, you know, we had to like really figure out what engages people and keeps them engaged. Mm. And all game design is about what pulls people in and what keeps them there. It's all, it's how you design game mechanics is, is, you know, if it's too easy, people get bored. If it's too complicated, they give up. So what is that balance in that moment? And then how do you create a chain of those balances to keep them moving as long as you want them to move, you know, through the game. So, um, so you got to keep throwing care, short-term carrots. You have a long-term arc, you know, that has to make sense that you, that they feel like there's some kind of big reward at the end. And, and then you got to give them freedom to explore. You got freedom to do stuff, you know, um, make mistakes. And then you got to really understand what's going to, you know, I mean, especially in today's age, day and age, like what, people get see so much and they get bored so quickly, mm. you know, or, or our attention spans, our attention spans are, you know, the size of a gnat these days, you know? So it's like, it's just, it, it keeps, keeps going, going down, down and around. Right? It's, it's crazy. I, yeah. um, so I think I meant, I mentioned to you that one of the, one of the goals of this show is to raise awareness for, um, you know, for kind of social media addiction and the challenges that we all face with the, with this supercomputer in our pockets and I'd love to hear kind of more your views, if you have any, on you know how game design is incorporated there. Oh, or yeah, what you sure. see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, game design is incorporated everywhere. You can, we've we've actually applied game design principles or mechanics into even company building. Like, how do you how do you design human resource systems to actually motivate employees to stay engaged and keep producing mm. at high levels? You know. Uh, you know, usually if they're really engaged and passionate, interested in their area, they produce more um, versus they're just being paid for it. So how do you keep them engaged? And then how can you tell what's that feedback loop? 
to tell them when you're not. So same in same with these things. I mean, these things are attention addiction machines, right? So they're attention addiction drugs essentially. So, yeah. and part of it's physiological. I mean, when you have a flickering screen, you know, your adrenals get hit. Mm. So it, it keeps you in your adrenals in an engaged, you know, like a very subtle fight or flight type of thing. So, um, so the flickering screen screens that hits your eyes, your brains to, you know, signals your adrenals to keep you pumped, you mm-hmm. know, and then when you're pumped, you're engaged uh, more. And unless you constantly, it, it becomes harder and harder, you know, to pull away from these things, you know, so flickering screens are part of the issue. So now if that was in the form of a book, it's much easier mm-hmm. to pull away because you don't have this thing pumping your adrenals. Um, this is like when I, I taught the six-year-old math, uh, I was tutoring a six-year-old for, um, you know, back, this is a while ago, but, uh, and he was from divorced parents and he, um, you know, just had a really bad attitude, really bratty, had temper tantrums all the time, just really angry had a lot of built up anger at six and it's just from what he was going through. And, um, so in tutoring and math, they're starting first grade, you know, single digit addition, one plus two equals three. And, you know, so I could tell he just was not paying attention. He just didn't care. He just, you know, his attention span was super short. He'd play game. He had his Game Boys. He'd play games all the time. He'd watch TV all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he'd junk food all the time. So the first thing I did is like I took him, you know, just to get his attention back. Yeah, you know, and they're about to put him on ADHD medication too. Yeah, so it seems to be the answer nowadays yeah. for, for pills. Any, yeah, pills. So, yeah. so the first thing I did was I said, before you do put him on meds, let me try something. So I pull him off all screens. Mm. So games, TVs, whatever, you know, all screens and give him allocated times, 30 minutes a day and then like two hours a day on the weekend, you know. And then um repurpose his food. Uh so it's all healthy organic stuff. And then um between those two, oh, and then every time he got emotionally, um, you know, got angry, I tell him, okay, sit on this couch here. Now it's a punishment, but just until you can figure out why you're angry, and then come tell me why you're angry. And then, so he sit on the couch when I get angry, which is often, and then he come tell me, okay, I'm angry because this, this, this. and I ask him, well, is this true? And then after a while, he would start to recognize that he he's angry. What the reason he's angry wasn't really accurate you know when he started to think about well is it true and does it really matter so after a while about a couple weeks he started recognizing himself when he was angry and started self-directing him to the couch he'd be talking he goes okay i'm angry but i'll be right back and you go to the couch wow one week that's it about two weeks two weeks yeah two weeks um and then he come and tell me okay this is what i figured out you know and then in about four weeks he just stopped getting angry because he became self-aware of his anger and and during that time also because of the screens not pumping his adrenals not keeping him in a fight or flight you know type of state all the time and his food becoming healthy his learning abilities went up so from that month on his learning ability scaled significantly to the point where he learned like full-blown basic algebra in four months at the age of six so you went from one single digit additions to full 20 by 20 times tables to division multiplication, all, you know, all the variations of that to algebra, to graphing, and even on square roots and exponents, you know, things by the time you're in like sixth, seventh grade, he was learning at first grade. And 
you know, part of it was how I taught him and the pattern of teaching him based on stuff I learned in the past. And then the other part was just enhancing his abilities and desire to want to learn. And the more he learned, the more confident he was feeling in himself, you know, more confidence he was gaining. So he, uh, he started building self-worth, mm. you know, and, and that self-worth wow. started like translating to kids in school. There'd be bullies. He would talk down and, and not only would he talk down, he wouldn't like talk him down saying you suck. He'd talk him down saying, look, I know you want to be friends, so I'll be your friend. And then he engaged them and embraced them. And then boom, they trans, they were transformed from bullies to just, you know, loving kids. And, and it happened, mm. it happened. I remember him telling us like what he told the person. I was like, wow. It's like he just he was six years old. Six years old. It's incredible. He went from a temper tantrum, you know, brat to like a little Buddha <laughs> walking, <laughs> walking around school asking his teacher, do you know what square root of 81 was? And, and, and part of that was due to, I mean, there was a whole program and obviously he had you as a mentor one on one, which I think is important. But, you know, part of that, as you said, was minimizing the screen time. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That guy's attention back. Yeah, diet, I, diet, and screen time, and then emotional management. So those three things, you yeah. know, got his attention, got his attention to focus back. And I think what's so you know detrimental about kind of not just the phone use, but the phone use for social media. You mentioned him getting back his sense of self worth in a lot of ways, right? And so now we're not only using our phones, but we're using our phones to compare ourselves um, to others. And actually, it's a it's a detriment to our self worth because you know, when we see these images of of photoshopped women you know it might lead to you know some body dysmorphia issues or someone on a vacation wonder why i'm not on vacation all the time this person travels all the time whatever so it's it's kind of like a, a combo factor um yeah that's funny a friend of mine told me you know there's always someone on vacation <laughs> so everyone so- is at a detriment because someone on your feed is all this there's always one person on your feet that's on vacation and it appears like everyone's on vacation all the time. Yeah. So it's, um, and we don't see the gaps. We don't notice the gaps. We only notice the pictures and every day there's somebody on vacation somewhere in the world. So on your feed. So it's an impossible thing to reach. You know, you can't always be on vacation all the time, you know, and or at least most people can. And, um, you know, so being, not being able to separate that, you know, a lot of people can't and then start comparing and then they start feeling bad about themselves, even if they may have an amazing life and, you know, but they still start comparing. I don't know. Comparison, there's a quote, comparison is the thief of all joy, right? So, yeah. So it's, um, it's true, but we, yeah. and yet we subject ourselves to these massive comparison engines that we check into pretty much regularly. Yeah. Whether it be, you know, it, it's meant to be a connection engine, but it becomes a comparison engine. Exactly. Exactly. In a lot of ways. And so I, I want to dive I want to dive deeper into that subject with you because I'm curious about your relationship to social media. Um, you know, I, I'm we're we're connected on Facebook and I know you post uh relatively often, but you also have a mindfulness practice and you know you're focused very much on your health. So I want to get back to that later on. But um I think it's important for people to understand a little bit more about you and your background because you're talking about tutoring and changing this this student's lifestyle you know, and, and what makes you uniquely qualified, you know, for that type of work and, and recommending a diet and things like that. Oh yeah. So I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't go to school for teaching and if I did, I probably wouldn't have done the things I did. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I, I tend to love, you know, it goes back to my engineering part of my brain. Like I'd love to deconstruct things and see how things work. Mm-hmm. And I really love to deconstruct things that are not tangible like you know some people call them metaphysical things like our mind or imagination or our creative abilities um how we think how we perceive fear 
you know, spent 15 years researching fear to figure out how fear works and came to like all these really beautiful realizations and truths. And were you, you have, you have such a varied background and you've done so many things. I mean, were you, were you researching this fear at the time that you were working on, um, on bringing 100 plus cultures together to New York city or, or was yeah. this, is it more like, yeah, yeah, that was actually part of my experiment. Cause that, well, you know, part of it was, so when I figured out fear, so I started researching fear when I did my first engineering structural building job after I graduated from college. Um, it's a mid rise 30, 40 story building in Orlando. And, um, it was just slabs and columns. And I was going up the open shaft elevator the first day. And for the first time, I was like starting to feel my heart palpitate and my hands sweat. I'm like, what's going on? And I realized, Oh my God, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> and I was going to be on that job for six months. And, um, <laughs> every day, uh, you know, I mean, I literally, and my job was to actually lean over the edge. That the happens every time I'm going to get a blood test, by the way. Okay. Yeah. So I had to lean <laughs> over the edge and check the rebar to make sure the proper amount of rebar was there, match the plans. So every day I'm like looking around, make sure no one's looking, crawl my belly, crawl 20 feet to the edge, look, you know, really quickly look and memorize the plans. So I don't have to like try to compare it there. Just make sure I count the rebar and make sure I measure the, you know, the, you know, and you're what, not, you're 30 stories up. You're not connected to anything. No, no, not connect to anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, it's terrifying. Yeah. Actually. I mean, you have a slab, but underneath you, you know, floor, but it's, you're not like, I wasn't like walking across I-beams, like, you know, back in New York, like those pictures I see there is cool. But, um, I was definitely, uh, you know, staying on the edge of these slabs and nothing, you know, nothing to protect me. You know, so I, um, yeah, so I discovered that I had a fear of heights and I do this every day until one day I figured out that. Well, a contractor asked me if there's a concrete truck that showed up and I walked to the edge, look around, didn't see it, came back and then reported it back and thought to myself, I was like, oh my God, wait, I didn't feel any fear during that when I walked over there. So I went back, looked around, all of a sudden I could start feeling the what if thoughts. What if I slip? What if I fall? What if I lose balance? What if, what if, what if? And then I felt a fear, you know, symptoms of heart palpitations, sweaty hands and nervousness, anxiety jump back. And then I realized, well, if I kept looking for the truck, I didn't feel fear. When I stopped looking for the truck, I did. And I realized, that, you know, what became the first principle of my, my hacking fear book that I've been writing um, is, you know, fear is based on time. It's always in the future. So if I'm present, there's no room for fear to exist. So it's always in the future of what if something happens. Mm. So, and many times it's triggered by the past. It's always experienced in the present. So the brain is such a, just like a giant if then engine. engine. It could be. It's programming though. It's social programming. So it doesn't have to be. And in mm. fact, we're programmed into that. We're not actually, we're not naturally that way. Mm. So, um, how are, how are, what's the natural state of our, our natural state is the opposite of fear, which is what I call trust. Mm. And I say there's one source energy, you know, I call flow or another word for it is love. A lot of people say fear and love are opposites. I don't, I would say it's, I would, get, I would add a few more nuances to them. I'd say it's not mm. fear and love. It's fear and trust and love is always present love that flow that energy life force is always there it's just when you're in a state of fear you're contracting your pipeline accessing more of that flow or the more of that love and when you're in a state of trust you're opening yourself to more of that because when you're if, you know my girlfriend's upset at me and you know she's in a panic you know kind of a fear state with me it doesn't mean she, there's still love there yeah it's just course. maybe less of it's flowing through her and i'm not feeling as much but it's still there right so so, um, so love and trust are opposite. So I found that the more I exercise my ability to trust, the more you trust, the less you fear. And the more I trust, the more flow I get that enables me to actually do more and accomplish more and, you know, push through things much easier. So, um, I started just practicing how to be in trust more. And then that translated to what I was doing in New York. I mean, I just kind of 
trusted in that things would go. I didn't, I didn't have much fear. And because I was creating something, you can't create out of fear. It's very hard to create out of fear because fear, you know, it blocks you. Yes. Trust opens you up to create a flow. So, so I just kind of was just moving, you know, moment by moment in that whole process that led me to this opportunity to do this stuff with the city and in the Olympics and whatnot. So, which I never imagined before. If mm-hmm. I imagined it before, I wouldn't even know how to get there because I was not, I mean, I wasn't known in the city. So, so the fearlessness, I kept moving forward and kept trusting, allowed me to merge into this opportunity. And that's been true pretty much for most things in my life. It's the more I trust, the more things flow to me or the more gravity I create, the more things that attract to me or the more things I move into that are aligned with what my intentions are. So it goes into like, what do I really want to, what my underlying intentions are, you know, goals come from intentions and then expectations from, come from goals. So these formed outcomes of this goal is your expectation. But if you give it, if you don't get too attached to that expectation or that outcome, then you leave room for creative forces to find better outcomes for you if that's not the right outcome. So, yeah. And it, it taps into me for a word that resonated with me last night that I'll bring up again, which is surrender. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think about Mickey Simpson and and the surrender experiment as, you know, a book that also inspired me. And and I think that's where he got this one of the conclusions that he came to as well was, you know, just trusting in what was presented to him and flowing flowing with that. Yeah. And so I hear, you know, you you know, I feel trust and surrender are so intertwined. But also so difficult at times. Surrender is a me. state of trust. So these are all states of trust. So I'll say like all positive emotions emerge through trust. Surrender is one of them. Mm. Um, gratitude, humility, courage, you know, uh, aspiration. Ambition would be on the fear side. So aspiration would be the equivalent. I like that. Um, so, so ambition is driven by driven by um, trying to prove a something. fear of, of not being enough. Exactly. Uh, aspiration is being driven, motivated by a desire to be in service or to create yeah yeah exactly okay yeah you're not one's filling a void trying to fill a void mm-hmm. um of worth and the other is trying to it's more based on inspiration and wanting to um like i said create and be in service or do something amazing for something mm-hmm. you know both upward mobility just different drivers so and there's very it's a very subtle too that's a very subtle well, and and you're you, you know you've had a unique experience in your life where you you know you contracted Lyme's disease um and you know you you had to probably deal with the fear that comes along with that um and obviously have learned so much and been able to share so much with others due to that experience yeah um, and that's one of the scariest times i thought i you know i thought when i was confronted with the lion in the safari that put me i mean that like that was one of my most primal fear Times when literally a lion walked up to me, I was in the uh, the um, the ra- the road ranger, the jeep, and it's open jeep. So yeah, you know, and my arm, he's literally like as far as you are from me right now. Yeah, and we've know, all like seen I'm, the videos of of lions, yeah, you know, jumping into Range Rovers. And, yeah, and I could feel his breath on my arm, and oh my God. just staring. And then the even the ranger was freaked out, and said, "Don't move, don't breathe," you know. And um, so I, I moved into my trust, like I just I said, everything's gonna be fine, and I. And this minute I got, I did my breathing and just moved into trust state within literally like seconds, I would say, the line got up and walked away. 
but it's almost like it could sense my fear, it could sense my heartbeat, you yeah. know, my anxiety. And um, so I thought that was probably one of the most scary moments I experienced that I moved through. But with Lyme, it was even worse. It was because I didn't know what was happening. There I knew what was going on. And I knew, okay, well, if it pulls me out, I'm going to get shredded, you know. So I knew mm-hmm. I could see what I, was, what I was up against. But Lyme, nobody knew it was Lyme for a year and a half. I had to figure it out. So that was like my whole body completely malfunctioning. And a diff- every day was a different experience, a different malfunction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. So it was like being constant you know, um, stress of, you don't know what the next day brings you. And the next day may be the end of you and not knowing that. And you have no control over it. You know, you have at least no even perceptual control of it because you have no idea what's happening, where it's coming from. So were you cultivating, I mean, I guess one, you know, just for people listening, like Lyme's disease, I think is a, is a misunderstood, um, you know, kind of disease that's out there. Could you explain like the, the physiological effect that it has? Yeah. It's uh, essentially the, it's a certain type of bacteria called a spirochete. And a lot of times it's um, contracted from a tick. And uh, although now there's research showing that it's not ticks anymore. And there are other forms of contracted Lyme disease. And a lot of people haven't don't 80% of Lyme patients. I remember seeing a paper on this, but 80% of Lyme patients that have Lyme don't remember tick bite. So um, and I'm one of them. I don't remember a tick bite and I was in LA and I wasn't hiking. So I don't know how it happened, but when you get it, it's a spirochete bacteria that drills into your, through your tissue, into your nervous system, and then causes nervous system inflammation. And, uh, when your nervous system's inflamed, you know, your body ends up contracting different symptoms mm-hmm. and the symptoms of Lyme disease tend to be diseases that doctors categorize. So MS is a disease but from a Lyme perspective, it's just a symptom. So people that have Lyme actually can develop MS. Wow. Uh, I had MS for a bit and rotated through it. You know, a Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, like all these, I had the shakes, I had the memory losses. Like I, one day I watched my memory just fade and I was aware of it fading, like, holy shit, I'm losing my memory. And I had to like sit there and breathe and I watched it come back. And wow. so I rotated through every textbook disease. I feel like probably 200 textbook diseases I experienced. Um, just because my nervous system would be inflamed here, then it changed, it'd be inflamed there, whatever. And it kept, you know, bubbling up different times. And you, at this time, you didn't even realize what you, what you had. First year and a half, I didn't. But yeah, the yeah. worst of it, I didn't realize. And when was this? Sort of January 2012. Okay, so a few years ago. Yeah, so 2012 to 2016, I'd say. It was my four-year window. Um, and then, yeah, so I just moved through these different things. And, you know, there are times when my body would completely crash. My whole nervous system would crash. And, you know, I had blindness bouts. I had all sorts of crazy experiences and symptoms and i mean so night and you know, my body I'm, even like your body breathing like that wasn't functioning properly like at night i wake up and my body wasn't in sync what my breathing pattern was not in sync i could feel like this weird phase gap of my breathing to my body where i'd have to create manual breathing rhythms until like it came back into phase lock mm-hmm. it's the weirdest weird so, just weird stuff like i couldn't take anything for granted so by, by 2012 had you already kind of cultivated your framework on on fear oh yeah i was finishing the book until no way. yeah was t- and then this happened like oh shit maybe because so now, now like i have depression test, and almost. panic attacks and anxiety i've never experienced that before so like at that level where and i could tell it wasn't me perceptually generating this stuff it was like something was pushing it into like forcing it on me like mm. so i knew this wasn't me like creating these fears. So, so You're I still granted an opportunity to really practice. Like, yeah. Well, for, it showed, opportunity. exactly. Yeah. It showed me, it showed me that there's another angle to this where you can generate fear from and it's physiologically induced fear versus 
perceptually into the sphere. So instead of top down, it's bottom up. And, uh, and that was the next four years of my life, figuring that out, how that works. And that's where I understood flow and discovered, um, at least in my framework, how I describe flow and what that is as life force, you know, mm. in a flow state is when you're actually accessing a significant amount of life force, you know, or for a period of time. And that allows you to do all these things. And, um, you know, and you have, you know, life force and your physical body, you know, they're connected. So, you know, it's more, the more life force you're accessing, you know, that means your, mm. your neurotransmitters, you know, your do- dopamine, your serotonin levels are raising and all these other things are happening. So, and to do that, you're, you know, either perceptually or physically doing certain things to trigger accessing more flow or being in a flow state, so to speak. But flow states are peak performance modes. They're like these short-term spikes. Yeah. What's the 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 kind of common flow state analogy that people tend to use is like is like a basketball player that just oh, okay. can't miss a shot, right? No, like well, runner's high, for example, is an example yeah. of flow. When you're just on autopilot and you're just running and don't even like you're you're not even you there. Feel things. Yeah, so you're like in the first zone. mile and a half. It's like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah, and you're in the like, zone. Right? In the zone, exactly. So, I mean, a good example when you experience your flow is when you know what normally would look like effort is effortless. Just, it's just everything's mm-hmm. happening. You're in a rhythm. So what all flow is is when you're in a rhythm. Mm-hmm. You're in a rhythm and you're riding that rhythm. So you're the wave is moving you. You're not putting effort into it, right? So it's like when you're surfing and you're riding the wave and you know how to and you're connected to the wave. Mm-hmm. You are the wave, right? So then you're. You know, you're not putting any effort into it. You're just riding it through, and that's that's what a that's what it feels like to be in a flow state, and that's when you become hyperintuitive. You know, you become stronger, faster, smarter. You heal quicker. You, um, you're super present. You know, you uh, you know, time dilates. It slows down or speeds up. It doesn't you know stay in our normal in our normal states, and um, so you have all these different interesting effects that happen when you're in, in a flow state. But what I was interested in these peak performance moments. We're, we're fine and cool, but you're only in them for minutes or maybe up to an hour. Yeah. You know, but when I go back down to my my default state, I was at this really low default state that I couldn't really function well. So I was like, well, how do I get my default state up? So I started referring to this peak performance moments, your flow state, like, you know, like the community refers to it too, but the default state, call it your state of flow, like your persistent state of flow or your default flow. Hmm. And, um, so then I spend the next four years just figuring out how to raise my default state. And that's a whole different set of principles There's like uh, that I figure out how to learn and practice and experiment with. And, and what, what are, I mean, what are a few of those principles? Yeah. So like when you're in a flow state, you know, things that trigger flow states is being present. Your, your skill to challenge ratio needs to be certain, you know, you had to have slightly higher challenge than your skill level. And these are like short-term drivers to move you into a performance state. Mm. Um, but if you want to add more flow to your baseline in a persistent way, you know, some of this is, you know, there are five areas. So I realized where we access flow, uh, one's your physiology. So, you know, whatever you put in and on your body, so your food and your diet and, you know, even the products you put in your hair and your makeup and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, they could create toxins in your body that could more flow or potentially the phone in your pocket, the EMF. Yeah, exactly. Radiation, EMF, all those things do. They could create toxic blockages in your flow physiologically even gen, even epigenetically right so so your physiology and, and is epigenetically means that there is a change in your underlying genetic code right from environmental factors well not changing your genetic code but certain genes are being expressed or unexpressed okay Got yeah on. that that uh, and you could alter your genetic code too in my opinion but um but epigenetically it refers to expression or or 
you know, so your genes go on permission. and off to express different attributes and yeah, individual. Yeah, that puts yeah, yeah, that actually causes inflammation or reduce or turns off inflammation, things like that. Um, so they could create blocks in your physiology, and that's where you get these symptoms or diseases and pains and you know all those types of things. So second is your mindset, so attitude, belief systems, um, programming. And this is where trust came so much into play. Fear, and trust, trust and exactly. your work on fear and your work on cultures and, and right. differences. How, as you said, as you're programmed right? Right. from a young age, culture is our environmental programming in a, lo- in a lot of ways. Yeah. Environmental being like your human environmental programming versus like outdoors. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, both. I mean, all of it, your, your circumstances, which includes everything. That's your program. That's Well, that's the, uh, how do you adapt and live within those environments? and cultures which has to do with that plus the past right so mm. um and then so the mindset ultimately boils down to attitude right but yeah it's belief systems it's programming it's you know emotional states what what trust. mindsets so tr- trust being one you mentioned a few so trust can express itself as gratitude as aspiration as courage courage what else for for humility flow state humility yeah so what i found with the long-term flow drivers gratitude is one of those you know mm-hmm. service altruism is another um when you're altruistic and you're doing things without expecting return mm-hmm. that can induce long-term flow curiosity is another one so curious people that are more curious end up living longer it's almost like a natural form of life extension i found interesting like in a research i found like for example you have you know i wrote this book on nikola tesla called the inventor or this graphic novel and when i was teaching a montessori school i um had them all research inventors you know, they read the book and then they all researched inventors in that same time frame and, and did a report on them. And what I noticed in all of them is like they all, all these inventors like Edison, you know, like Tesla lived to be 86 years old. He's born in 1848 that's, that's, or 1852. Sorry. 1852. I wonder what the equivalent is in our, in our years now. Yeah. A lot more. Cause well, what's interesting is, so he lived to be, you know, that old, right. Edison lived to be 84. Mm-hmm. So he was 86. Edison's 84. Um, Lord Kelvin was 75, you know, all these inventors, scientists and, you know, engineers, you know, that group of people during that mid 18, they were born in the mid 1800s, lived to be between their 70 and 80s. But the average lifespan for people over the age of five during that same time frame was 52. Wow. So that's after the age of five, not so it doesn't include all the, you know, child diseases. So in a way, that common thread of curiosity between those. That's what I, so that was my suspicion. That was what, that's what I theorized or hypothesized. And then I started researching more and I found actual studies that show that people that have, you know, there's a study that had 2000 people um, in the study between the ages of, I think like 55 and 65 or something like that. And um, they measure their curiosity levels and the ones that were more curious live longer than the others. And the ones that are less uh, develop neurogenetic diseases much earlier. And so I don't know if this is curiosity, but my grandmother, God bless her, is 99 years old, and she's been doing the um, the New York Times crossword puzzle for you know the Sunday one, like every yeah. Yeah. every week for the last like 30 years, and we attribute she's sharp as a tack. Stimulation, so that's mental. So she's using brain faculty. So yeah, she's very brain. So I don't know if curiosity is much of stimulation, but um, yeah, I mean there's both. But curiosity, like a good example, the curiosity I'm talking about is. Well, well, no, it's true. There's curiosity there because she's discovering. She to, she's exactly. Just, she has to learn a lot of new things every time she does one of those puzzles. There's novelty. So, so yeah. there's novelty. So novelty is a driver flow. Oh, cool. And um, so if you discover, explore, 
or try something new, travel new places, new people, all that stuff that increases flow in your relationships, things like that, or finding novelty in your existing relationship, finding mm. new things to pursue, uh, new things to try with each other, um, new things to explore, you know, together or with each other. So that's all novelty. You don't have to have new relationships every time to be novel. Yeah, you know, which I is like what some that. people do that. But you can create new novelty within your existing relationship. So the um but you know, like Stephen Hawkins is a great example. You know, he had ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease, and he was supposed to die at the age of 22, 23 is what they predicted. And he aged lived to the age of 76. Yeah, you know, it's insane, right? That's 50 years longer than <laughs> than what they predicted, which is the lifespan almost of, almost in- Entirely yeah, due to three, his just curio- that was pure curiosity. He kept uncovering the secrets of life, or, and what well, he perceived as the secrets of life or secrets of the universe. And yeah. you know, so that kept him going. And I found that. So when I start putting it into my framework, it's like if your curiosity, if you if you you know have high degrees of curiosity, then your body follows your mind. Your body will your curiosity will create enough flow to keep your body so your body can keep up with your mind. Why do you think? Why do you think that we have this saying "curiosity killed the cat"? <laughs> just like just to bring up the fun side. Just because anything is, is it, cats are fun. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, curiosity no, killed the cat. Because yeah, yeah. But, but, because but the cat like, has nine lives. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There you go. Yeah. I, I ask only because I think I think with with any attribute, you know, like we apply like this this mental state good, that mental state bad. Maybe there are some mental states like gratitude that's just like you know always good. Yeah, but you know well it depends on what it, what like, it depends when, on how you frame curiosity if, you're, if curiosity is being nosy that's one thing but curiosity when you're trying to discover the mechanics and secrets of how things work and there's mm-hmm. discovery that's part of it that gives you aha moments it really it's not the curiosity yeah. part it's what the curiosity leads to got it curiosity leads to novelty you know it leads to discovery which is another form of novelty mm-hmm. and then ultimately if it gives you an aha moment you're popping a truth bubble what i call these truth bubbles and these truth bubbles have flow in it and you're adding new flow to your system persistently forever and so it's, it's so the more truths you discover and that only happens through curiosity then the more when i call universal truths the more universal truths you discover the more homos you gain the more flow you have now permanent access to and and that's a feedback loop i was just thinking about your experience and how you you know were were searching for answers right and mm-hmm. discovering you know we haven't really talked about this but discovering new ways of treatment for the lives and how that that process of kind of seeking might have also stimulated you to enter kind yeah. of the next level of flow. Well, I definitely moved into a high state of curiosity there because I was like, okay, if I'm going to hack this thing. I need to learn how it works. Mm. And the best way to do that is just meet a bunch of health practitioners, scientists, technologists, anyone who's done different things, you know, as a visitor, probably 30 to 40 alternative, what I call alternative, mean not mainstream doctors because their final conclusion with, with me was they don't know what's going on. So mm. I ran into a dead end with that. So I tried all these other alternative fringe people on the fringe, you know, um, technologists, scientists, practitioners, doctors, you know, whatever they're pushing the boundaries on what was accepted as mainstream. And I learned a lot. Like I learned how they view the mind and body, all the different things and angles and different systems that they look at from Eastern medicine to, you know, the obvious stuff would be Eastern medicine, acupuncture, Ayurveda, naturopathic, you know, homeopathy and all these things. But then there's some cool stuff that, not even on the radar of anyone that there are no names for this stuff. And, you know, some of it has psychic abilities and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Like that, what? Um, well, I mean, you could like one, actually it was interesting. This isn't psychic, but this is like a Vedic astrologer 
was looking at a chart of mine and was able to tell me everything that's happened to me without knowing me the first time he met me nothing to look up either because mm. none of this stuff's public it was just and down to the date or the month and the year of when this stuff would kick in and he was highly accurate like he said in 2012 you're january 20 december 2011 january 2012 you're going to have a major health crisis that kicks in it's going to affect these organs and this was three years later and then i was like yeah, so did exactly you go right. back? Did you go back to him after mm-hmm. you realized that he was accurate? Yeah, it was accurate. Yeah, he told me when I was going to have a high degree of chance that I'm going to be doing a major performance in July of 2015, and it gave me like a window. And six months later, coincidentally, that's exactly when the performance was booked, and I had no control over that. There was only one date available, and that was the date. Wow. And I ended up doing the performance. And then later, I realized, like, oh my god, I remember him. I listened to the recording again i was like oh he called that he said that in the thing so anyway yeah, I mean, just, these, these supernatural you know i didn't say they're supernatural there's i feel like it's just another system that this group of people understand how it works and they're just using it to you know like you know like nature ecosystem i, it's a system. Say, I mean they're, they're, yeah. they're out there right and yeah there's and other systems out there that so that are and it comes down to trust as well right in some ways i mean well, some of this stuff was like, he ta- he called it in my past. So I didn't even know him. And he said, and I was like, you're right. Those organs were specifically affected. And he goes, this sounds intense. It's like a full on disorder. I'm like, yes, I had Lyme disease. He goes, oh, wow. Explains it. So even things that he felt like were, didn't make sense, made, actually were accurate. So, so, I mean, that's just another example, but he had a system. It wasn't like he was, he didn't claim to be psychic. He's like, no, I'm just reading this and using these things as reference points to pull from you know, this other data, this database that he had, yeah. you know, and, um, but I did meet some people that had some little psychic ability. In fact, I felt like I was developing psychic abilities when I was accessing more flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, my, and I think psychic ability is everyone has it. Well, you mentioned whether, flow is kind of like an increased energy state, right? And when we, I'm a yoga practitioner and when, yeah. you know, we talk about yoga, we speak about prana, uh-huh. right? And prana is kind of the energy that flows through all things. And right. some individuals just, elevate their ability to intake more prana right. and to hold that mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of it is nervous system based yeah so like how how much can your nervous system handle like i think we all have the ability to elevate the amount of prana that we that we can hold within us and then uh, of course release because it's not ours um but it's interesting i think like alma as an example alma the hugging saint mm-hmm. you know like she's yeah. beautiful and, and people thousands of people go to her and just all consistently have an experience of hugging her like that is what true love feels like yeah and it elevates them right and yeah. i don't think anyone can really explain that maybe chemically it's oxytocin yeah but, but you can hug other people do you get the same yeah thing, you get you the know? same so, yeah. oxytocin kick so yeah so yeah no i agree and, and you know there are different ways of accessing there's a there's another system out there that i was researching for a while um uh called uh, i forgot the name of it it's super interesting um but their, their system has 72 levels to it, of which the fourth level was awakening your Kundalini. So that's like the beginning. And wow. you develop all these powers or these abilities, not powers, but these abilities, telekinesis, mm. um, you know, uh, what do they call it? Cryokinesis, electrokinesis, like all the various, these various abilities based on how you harness your chi, essentially. You know, it's based on a chi system. And uh, Mopai, it's called Mopai. And okay. it's uh, super interesting. And some of the people that documented the master, what how he was training them, what he's able, to, you know, able to do, was pretty remarkable. Those were not 
normal human abilities, you know, like stopping a bullet with your hand at, when your hand's at the end of a rifle and having no damage to the bullet or your hand, you know, that's mm. interesting because there's, where did the energy go? You know, the bullet wasn't crushed and the hand wasn't damaged. So, you know, th- things like that. So, I mean, there's, I feel there's another, like in physics, we're focused on one universe, you know, or one part of the universe. And there's another part of the universe. You know, the yang is the particle universe and the yin is what they, how they refer to it. Yang is a particle universe, yin is a field. So energy can move between those two things too. So almost like tapping into dark matter. If that's- yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like that. And um, so it's, uh, you know, and there's some examples of that, like where you could actually move into the yin field or the yin universe versus the yang universe. We're in the yang universe right now, but uh, the yin universe would be. Yeah, or the mayas, some yeah. to refer to it. Yeah, maya is another, another reference point. The maya would be the yang universe emerging from the yin universe, so to speak. But there's, a, there's still a feedback loop. You know, so, so there's a feedback loop. So everything has a feedback loop. So the first thing I learned, like, especially with Lyme stuff, I, like really psych, really honed into the idea of everything. Everything exists within a system. Everything exists within a system Which and they all have feedback loops. Because without a feedback loop, there's no autocorrect or maintenance of the system. Mm. So system has to, if a system is in homeostasis, if it's imbalanced, then it has to have a feedback loop. So change, you got to look at Change one thing, something else needs to change in order to keep the system in balance. Right, exactly. Got it. So, um, so this particle universe has to have a feedback loop to keep it in balance. It can't stay in balance within itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, so this is something that I, I find to be so cool about, you know, going back and, and studying kind of the, the uh, um, yogic texts and other, you know, ancient wisdom is they were on point. Like if you look at the mm-hmm. chakra system, oh, yeah. right. And where, where it aligns with, with your glands, as well as where it aligns with kind of these these kind of pockets, and you would know this better than I do, but these pockets of kind of like nerve endings, mm-hmm. right? They are the hubs of the nervous system. Yeah. And, you know, that's the energetic system within our body, but also without as well. So it's, you know, I think science is still catching up to a lot of the, the ancient knowledge that was there before. And only now are we starting to realize like, hey, maybe we should go back and look back at this wisdom and see what what else we can learn from it. Yeah, no, it's true. I agree. I would say science is catching up with what was already figured out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, but what's interesting about science catching up is they could get more of the nuance and the mechanics of why it works that way. Right. So it, it fulfills um, our desire for the why we, we all have that. Yeah. Well, well, we're also a species that likes to create things, right. Mm-hmm. Versus just like, versus just exist within things. So, so if we understand why, then we end up creating our own system or another version of something or our own, you know, our own beings, our own planets. Like how you were working on VR in in the late nineties, you know? Yeah. And who knows when we'll end up with an oasis or a metaverse, but it's going to happen hopefully in our lifetime. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if we don't understand the mechanics of how things work, we can't like when I got all that infusion of all these artistic ideas from Mm -hmm. gateway to the world, um, I was able to dissect them and rearrange them to create new things. That's how we work, right? So mm-hmm. same with this. Like, okay, you arrange how the mechanics of this works. You might be able to rearrange it to solve a problem or do something, create something, another desired outcome. We're masters of composability. Exactly. <laughs> like, we love to compose and rearrange and, and create new things. I mean, that's all creation is. It's just rearrangement of old stuff. Mm. You know, and... Um, what, it's true. It, like, isn't it... I mean, you're, you're a pianist, so isn't every song kind of uh, made up of all songs. I mean, obviously they're made up of the same notes, so it's just a rearrangement of notes, but also even like chords and mm-hmm. and scales. And, yeah, and tempos and all sorts of stuff. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, all sorts of variability there, but it's all, re- you know, not necessarily old stuff, but just rearrangement of other stuff. 
yeah. or other stuff or rearrangements. Yeah, you know, it's a feedback loop again, right? But um, yeah, I find like I think that the uh, the whole idea of science versus ancient wisdom they could go hand in hand as long as we don't have the skeptics disregarding the ancient stuff. You know, because I mean, there was certainly programmable belief systems that weren't based on science that took place. But there's a lot of stuff that actually was based on science. They just, they had a different view on how they looked at it. It was an individual, like, especially with yogic practice, it was the science of the individual's exploration of self. So it was anecdotal within self. But if you could reproduce that experiment across thousands of masters throughout time and they pass it on through word, then that's science, right? The N increased. Right. So So, the problem with science now is you have limited tools to measure only certain things. So if you can't measure, quantify or qualify things that are not physical in nature or measure. It's not even physical, it's measurable because there are physical things you can't measure yet. Like, you know, our life force, you can't really measure with Western scientific instruments yet. But But I um, I think it comes back to trust, you know, and the hard thing is that so many people get burned by false prophets and by individuals that claim that they can do one thing, but really can't. mm -hmm. And I know that there's an element of like, if you don't, you know, I, I think in hypnotism, I watched a professional hypnotist perform and he was like, you, I cannot hypnotize you if you don't believe that I can hypnotize you. If you don't want me to, I won't be able to. Right. Right. So there's an element of like, we need to trust and believe for these things to have power. Um, But, you know, there's so, as someone that's, that's experienced. Well, it's also more than that. It's not just believing like your, your physiology has to be able to accept it. Like um, when I had Lyme, I was like before Lyme, I, I wouldn't be able to be hypnotized. During Lyme, I had such a drop in life force that I was way more susceptible to being hypnotized or programmed or influenced. Mm. So, um, so even if I believe I can be hypnotized, you know, I could overpower that physiology probably, but my physiology has to be allowing or enabling or susceptible enough for that type of programming to take place. Yeah. And we, I mean, we were talking earlier about con artists, right. And yeah. how, how they can take advantage of people. And right. I think that, um, you know, I, th- I think that it's it's hard because you want, I want to trust, right? And then there, okay, there so are there's a difference. take advantage of that trust. Yeah, so there's a difference. So trust is, so when I think of trust, I think of trust that goes with awareness. So fear goes, so if you have fear and trust are the two spectrums, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you have a dot in the middle and an arrow point to the left and that's fear and an arrow point to the right and that's trust, those are spectrums. So fear starts with doubt and then it moves into higher states of fear. And trust doubts. You know, At least tr- to the dark side of the force. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And trust starts with, and he nailed it, I think. Uh, he really nailed did. With so, yeah. Gotta love Yoda. Yeah. Gotta, yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, you know, trust starts with, you know, hope, you know, and moves in that direction, you know, until you're in a full state of trust. Um, but what also moves with the spectrum is ignorance on the left and awareness on the right. So, you know, so hope goes to faith, which kind of moves up. But you have to have awareness. So if you have trust with ignorance, mm. that's not trust. That that's more like faith. Yeah. Well, not even faith. Uh, I mean, it's. I mean, there is faith. There are elements of faith there, but it, like, but what's really driving it is want. Mm. Right. You want this specific outcome, therefore you're going to believe. You know. Got it. So it's like a, it's like a scientist setting up an experiment with a hypothesis up front, but really wanting that hypothesis to be true. And so now all of a sudden the experiment gets skewed, and it's actually so, just so, like tainted so, by that desire because they revel in ignorance. So they're not 
they're not gaining awareness. Because if you trust with awareness, then you're getting data points. And if you're rational, then you realize, okay, this is making less less sense, or this is becoming, or the risk factors mm-hmm. don't balance out with, you know, the patterns of what could happen or what happened or should happen. Then you could be more precautious. You know, I mean, you could be more. If you're more aware, then you be able to make better decisions. But if you're reveling in ignorance and you allow yourself to do that, then then your decisions are going to be less likely to be, you know, the right ones. So, um, Mm. so, so there's trust with awareness is kind of what I always, when I think of trust or why I say trust, I mean, trust with awareness and awareness is just more understanding, more data, more information, you know, it's, Um, it's almost like trust, but verify. Yeah. Trust but verify. Sometimes you can't verify everything. Yeah. And I think that's, that's why, well, and that's where I think this argument of kind of like spirituality versus science comes into play, even though they can be very much aligned you know, I think of Graham Ham- Hancock as like a prime example of someone that struggles with this in, in his life, right? Like you can't prove it. Therefore, it must not be true. Right. Which is bad. Which is a bad. It's, you know, it's not the best framework, but no, it's, it's, it's what some people have to work with. And then on the flip side, it's like you can't disprove it. Right. So therefore, it has to be true. Right. And, you know, there's somewhere in the See, middle. That, as well. Yeah. That's a black and white version, right? So if you yeah, I mean, there's a version where you can't prove it, therefore it could be true or it may not be true. But you're open to the idea that it could be true, mm. but you're not going to be surprised if it isn't true. Yeah. So that way you allow more information to flow to you to help figure out what side of the scale it sits on. But the minute you cut off that flow, the minute you say, no, that's not true, you know, just because you can't prove it with your limited information and your limited framework and your limited tools... Then you may cut off a huge opportunity of, even if it's not true, but you may discover a whole bunch of new stuff on the way, right? So, yeah. so you just limit yourself from opportunity and more knowledge and information awareness. On that, on that side of the spectrum, you know, like I've, I always like to use this, the analogy of kind of the underwater creatures, another planet Earth analogy where there are certain creatures that live in the deep sea that radiate a color, let's say red, that most of the other deep sea creatures can't perceive. And so they're literally floating around invisible to every other creature around them. And I think about water as a fluid and air as a fluid. And so when we think about ghosts or we think about spirits or whatnot, Mm -hmm. just because we cannot perceive them with our senses does not mean that they're not there. And that's like a very clear case to me of like, if there are things that exist in this one fluid that most, most species can't perceive, and we're just in a different kind of fluid, then it's obvious to me that there can be, you know, spirits or, or whatever you want to call it that we don't perceive or energy that we don't have the ability to perceive. Now that doesn't mean that it is there. And so when I make that argument, sometimes my friends that yeah. are more on like the logical rational right. side of the spec, that feels actually like a rational argument to me, but some people come back at me and say like, well, you know, then you can say anything that we can't disprove is, is true. It's possible. It's possible. Not true, but possible. Yeah. And I would agree with that. I think any of this stuff that can disprove is possible for sure. Um, doesn't mean it's probable or, or it is, but it's possible. So there's no, and there's no detriment to pulling out a possibility or to recognizing a possibility. You know, if you have to make a choice on a possibility, then you want more information and data. But if you don't, then leave it open. You know, allow, allow for possibilities to exist because anything, technically anything is possible. You know, and um, it just, just depends on the circumstances and the context. Like, like I know, I know people that have taken plant medicine, and they have viscerally, and in groups, experience seeing things together. 
you know, and um, or experience other realms, you know, and they've all consistently experienced these same realms or seen the same lady ayahuasca, you know, communicating with them or whatever. And so, so it, there's so much out there that we literally have a very limited tool set to measure what we think we see and know and perceive. So, and now, and now I think science on the plant medicine side, science is starting to catch up with that in some ways. And there, we're seeing more experiments um, with groups that are held in that, in that heightened state under DMT, for example, for a long period of time where they're trying to add some kind of scientific rigor to studying the visions that these people see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's interesting, right? The desire, we have this desire on the science side to prove, um, you know, to prove something to be, it's almost like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a cool, um, con- not contradiction. Well, science reality. is your mass baseline, right? So that's the, really the baseline for the masses. Like, like people experience things and those experiences are true. Now, why that's true. That's a different story, but mm. you know, it's true to them. Right. So, so then the question is if it's reproducible through multiple people, then it could be true for many. Then, you know, science is really something that's meant to be true for the masses. Repeatable. Yeah. And, well, and you've well, had truth for the masses, but repeatable you've had direct experience with this as well, because you yeah. went and, and took a different path mm-hmm. towards, you know, towards curing yourself in a way of, of Lyme's disease. And, you know, you didn't use traditional scientific well, that's well. Your science, you yeah, yeah. The scientific well, they have very limited traditional scientific. They, I mean, they're, they have one test called the Western blot, which is really bad mm. and very inaccurate, and only limited to Northeast ticks. So, it's like, it's not a good, <laughs> you know, so it's not a good tool. You know, so they don't have a lot of great science so about it. I, I want to go back to flow, flow state because yeah. I know we're we're running short on time, um, which is great because we've been we've been all over. Yeah. Um, so going back to flow state, so physiological. Mental states. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, let me tell you the five things. So, physiological um, mindset. Mm-hmm. Two, three is environment. You know, you know, the environment could be toxins in the air and the water or whatever else. Uh, it could also be space design. Like, you could be in a cubicle and that could reduce flow versus being in open, like, outdoors or being in an office with windows or a house I with windows. I love my office for outdoors. Yeah. So, environment is a big influence. Sunlight versus, you know, you know, cloudy cities, you know, um, all those things. Um, the fourth is social interaction. So, you know, interacting with other people, other animals, other life, you know, outdoors, nature, plants, you know, things, whatever that might be. And, um, I found like when I was really bad, I was isolating myself, you know, cause I think that's the right thing to do. And I didn't want to be embarrassed and feel bad around people. But when I go to these birthday parties and things that committed to going, I actually felt better. About normal so like oh man i need to be more socially active to normalize my you know to feel mm-hmm. good than isolated so it's counterintuitive to me at the time but i realized wow social interaction actually is nourishing because we feed off each other's flow like last night when we did this piano sound bath yeah you know it's very different when you have you know 100 people in a room doing it together than when it's just a couple people because the count there's a compounding effect exponential effect of every person that's in the room exponentializes the ability for everyone to drop in deeper together and um it's just like a yoga class when you I was when gonna I, say when we do a collective breath in yoga class and you sigh out the air together it's like so much more powerful yeah it's a compound so effect beautiful. right yeah and the same like i bend more like i used to teach yoga and i mm. bend more when i'm in a yoga class with multiple people than when i'm doing it on my own just because yeah. i'm feeding off everyone else's energy and vice versa so we all end up going deeper being I, able I, to do more i didn't study much under him but dharma mitra in new york is uh 
you know, a guru from Brazil yeah. that many follow and he's incredible. And I studied psychic development with him and some, pra- some pranayama practices. I'd like to learn more, but he, uh, his classes often, they have, you know, a session where there's two mats in the middle and there's a group circle around where everybody's doing the poses. And then at random, he'll call people in, or if they feel so inclined to come in mm-hmm. and do, you know, as an offering to the yeah. group, a pose. Yeah. And just to see the difference, right? The power that that brings as you're yeah. kind of in the center of the circle doing your offering to the group, like how much deeper you can go, yeah. you know, for because of that energy. When everyone's feeding it, yeah, feeding you flow. Yeah, so no, I, I've done his thing and um, I've done that too in our classes where we'll have four mats laying around and people just, and we're in a circle and, and, um, and people just run in the middle and do their pose. And when I did it, I mean, I went from, I did things that I haven't been able to do, especially then. Yeah. Or, I mean, I'd float, I'd float into crow and then move into a headstand and then roll out of it in, into a warrior position. Like, it was just like stuff like, holy, like I didn't even know yeah, do that like, stuff. And I was doing it just because I was feeding off all the flow and love yeah. and, you know, and positive conf- confirmation from everything. We, we talk about festivals too. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just like that, right? It's, yeah. you know, you can get in a crowd at a festival and all of a sudden it's like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or the yeah. opposite. Was, yeah, no. <laughs> So fourth is social interaction. And the fifth is um, lifestyle. Like, so, you know, creative endeavors I found are super flow inducing. Um, you know, this is where Ayurveda was super helpful for me. I found like the right lifestyle habits that was nourishing to my constitution, to my dosha. And what is Ayurveda? So Ayurveda is the Indian health science of yoga. So sister science of yoga. Yoga is, um, Ayurveda is where you actually look at the full system. Mm-hmm. You know, yoga is a path within Ayurveda, so to speak. So Got you could it. actually use certain yoga poses to actually um, heal certain ailments. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a health side. It's like Eastern medicine equivalent of like, you know, of understood, understood. So um, Ayurveda, you're based on these, what they call three doshas, basic doshas, uh, which is your constitutions, your mind and body, what the makeup is. And, um, you know, Kapha, Pitta, Bada, and, and these things are incredibly wildly accurate, I found, with Lyme. Because when my vada was out of balance, I'd eat the foods that were suggested to help pacify a vada in balance. Mm-hmm. I would do the yoga poses. I would do, you know, like the, the lifestyle time, you know, I mean, the lifestyle habits that were suggested, the, the times to eat, how often to eat. Like, all these lifestyle day-to-day things was really accurate. Even the oils to use, super accurate to what was calming me down. Like you can have a, a real organic food, but certain foods will still not be good for you. And other foods will be, mm-hmm. you know, they're all healthily grown foods, you know? So depending on what dosha or what constitution you are. So broccoli might be good for you, but not good for me. You know, where mushrooms might be great for me or, and, or like, and what are the three doshas? Like, what do they represent? Cause I'm thinking of the three gunas for some reason. Yeah. The gunas are different. So the three doshas are, they're, they're based on, I mean, in the Indian culture, it's based on five elements, right? Um, earth, water, fire, wind, or air, and and space, the void, and um, or ether is what they call it. So, mm. you know, kapha is um, earth and water. So they're, those are the people that are really big bone, really round faces, smiley big teeth, mm. big eyes, really grounded. You know, they love rhythm. They love to like, they're very loyal. They're very, um, you know, they like rhythms, but they don't like, you know, they, once they're put on a rhythm, they want to keep going. Mm-hmm. in that direction they're um but they're slow and steady but they're very steady and reliable right pitas are fire and water they're like the trailblazers the entrepreneurs the salespeople, 
they like to burn paths in and they're very like fiery and like driven and ambitious mm-hmm. um aspirational or actually ambitious <laughs> sometimes both it depends it depends some are aspirational some are ambitious but they're very driven whatever that is right um and uh and you know but they're also like flowy because they get around roadblocks they don't mm. stop so okay if there's something that you know the flow around it so that's where the water comes from the fire is you know the drive the rocket fuel and then vatas are air and ether and they're the artists the visionaries so they're the ones that are floating up here and they have a higher vantage point they can mm. see more and they're when they create beauty they create you know um and can one's constitution be kind of on the border of yeah so i'm a i'm a pitavada ah uh, okay so, so yeah yeah so you get more than one there's dominant ones but i mean and you could you actually have all three it's just one's more dominant than the others or you know you may have a combo that's dominant than the than the third so when um my pitta went out of balance. It threw my vada through the roof when I had mm. lime. So I had to do things to bring, cause I was feeling untethered. I was like floating up here, going with the wind. So when vadas are in balance, they become indecisive. They don't follow through on things. They, you know, they're hot and cold. They're, you know, they're like up and down emotionally. Yeah. They're untethered. They're just, they're, cause you know, they're not grounded. Um, when a pitta is out of balance, they get burnt out. They become irritable. They become like really fiery and impatient. You know, I think, you know, they become dehydrated. Mm. The fire burns all their fluids and kapha. <laughs> sounds familiar right now. So. Yeah. Yeah. And kapha, <laughs> you know, when they're in balance, they become really stubborn. They don't want to change. They want to move. You know, they become really, they start to hoard things. You know, they become very paranoid. Like everyone's trying to take stuff from them. Mm. You know, so um, mentally they become, yeah, yeah, paranoid and like protective, overly protective. And, and you can have, you can have three, those three elements, right? You we can, have all three. It's just one's our nature has one of them is more dominant than the yeah. others, you know, in our, in our natural state, but then we can move into the other state. So I could pull kapha out of me and, and ground and do all those things. I could pull pitta, I could, you know, but my long-term natural state is pitta. Probably. What practices do you have to pull for yourself, you know, to pull these different mind states or even to pull yourself into flow state? What practice do you have? Um, that changes. So like a lot of what I'm doing, what what I've been doing has been kind of more focused on creation lately, but uh, traditionally, you know, like meditation, yoga is all this good stuff to like keep your body systems functioning or optimized and mm-hmm. um, your exercise of some kind. But uh, I've done that as often as I used to lately. But uh, you know, a lot of it for me has been diet. You know, the right foods and eating the right way has been super helpful and nourishing. Uh, certain supplements I take based on my what I feel you know, what nutrients I feel like I need. Um, and, and perceptually, like I have this really interesting, um, loose perception with time. So I don't have a very hard connection with time, uh, as far as my age is concerned. So I tend to age better or slower than people, than most people. Um, some people say it's genetic, but you know, I look at other people in my family, they, you know, it's not. (laughs) How old are you? Uh, 44. Oh, wow. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I was not. How old would you think I was? Your thirties. Yeah, that's what most people are, 32, 33. So, yeah. so um, <laughs> wow. So I think it has a lot to do with my perception of time, and not connecting to time too, too rigidly. So, mm. um, and what I mean, it's by funny that, how the, the yoga masters think about our lives and in, in the number of of heartbeats that we have or breaths, because yeah. the slower our breath, the slower our heart rate. Yeah. We all are born with a certain number of heartbeats. Mm-hmm. 
And so maybe the, your perception of time, lack of perception of time slows your heart rate and thus yeah. allows you to age slower. But many of them, have, you know, they appear to be, you know, much younger than they really are. Well, you have a limited amount of heartbeats based on the perceptual level you're at. Is what I would say. That one more factor. Mm-hmm. If you reach higher states of perception, then you have more. So, mm-hmm. so within that, within a, you know, and everything, I, I think source of all flow is what, a, and the source of all fear um, is perception. So, if you could start opening up your perceptual lenses, you access more flow, and now you're leveling up your baseline. But within the baseline, you have a certain amount of heartbeats. If you level it up, you actually have more heartbeats. You know, so. So you could How actually you open up perceptual lenses. Well, that's um, so my my. <laughs> sure. Well, no, that's my that's what I that's my system. I kind of framework I've been developing. It's called I call it flowology, but um, mm. until I think of a better name for it. But uh, I had a I did call it quantum body, but it felt too quantumy. So <laughs> so it felt too ethereal versus like real. So um, flowology. So you have five layers to how we access flow. So, what I, mm. so the five things I told you about. Yeah. Were lifestyle points of flow, like sources of flow, you know? Um, so it's on this, uh, this life plane for, so to speak. Um, so, you know, physiology, I mean, it's your body, your mind, essentially mm-hmm. your, your environment, social interactions and lifestyle, those five things, those are the points of entry for flow or points of blockage, but how flow comes into our system through a human experience is uh the vertical version of that versus the horizontal version uh it's phys- you have a physical body and that's the final layer to where we access flow and the symptomatic layer then the layer above that's your uh, meridian body so where your chakras and your meridians are or your nadis in yoga as we mm. refer to them um your energy channels yeah right that's what powers your body essentially i think the dharma said seventy-two thousand nadis mm-hmm. yeah seventy-two thousand nadis right it's the it's this is the uh, number that the yoga tests have it's incredible yeah so um the precision the precision yeah. right yeah yeah it's exactly. precision and the, and the level and the number of rerouting potential mm-hmm. right our bodies can reroute flow so efficiently i think which is nadi, why we sustain ourselves i think of nadi shodanam you know yeah. how you can rebalance yeah your, you know your left and right just by changing the, the nostrils that you breathe through exactly exactly and then the third layer is our mental emotional body yeah, uh, which is where fear and trust. That's where that became a big uh, component of. Uh, the fourth layer is what I call a perceptual body. That's where, where our belief systems and programming exist. And the fifth layer is this universal realm or this realm of universal truths. And that's where infinite flow exists. That's the life force. That's the ocean of flow. Yeah, Brahm, Brahman potentially, would you say? Yeah, now? yeah, I'd say, yeah. So it's where all flow and existence exists, right? All life force exists. All the potential energy in space, so to speak, yeah. yeah. And um, if we have a belief system misaligned with the truth, then we get less flow. That generates fear-based emotions, which creates less flow. Then that creates meridian blocks, which creates less flow. Then your body gets drops of flow from this ocean of flow available to it. Mm-hmm. Then the drops of flow you do have, you have the physical toxins, the heavy metals, the chemicals, the pathogens, the food allergens that come in and block your flow even more. If you don't deal with that, you develop disease, eventually atrophy and die. So in my case, I had to reclaim the flow I already had within the perceptual lens that was already existing, you know, so whatever drops I was getting, I had to reclaim that. So that's what I mean. Like you have a certain amount of heartbeats within that, you know, if nothing else changes up here, you know, so to speak. Mm. So, but if you start opening up channels to more flow, you know, then you can expand Then you can expand. Yeah. Then things change down here too. Mm. So, 
perception, perceptual, the perceptual lens is this bridge between universal truths and the perceptual body, which is all the belief system and programming. So I found that like the way I modeled it is these truths, say there's 6,000 some truths that we're here to experience in the human experience. Mm. Um, they're capturing these, what I call these truth bubbles. And each of these truth bubbles have flow in it. And when you hit an aha moment, you pop a truth bubble and that flow goes to your baseline and increases your baseline by that much. And the more mm. truth bubbles, the more aha moments you get, these universal truths you experience, not discover, know about intellectually, but you have to experience them. That's what raises your baseline. And that's how your baseline of flow increases. And when that happens, your immune system goes up, your functions, your abilities go up. That's kind of how I was systematically popping these truth bubbles that found a way of figuring out what my triggers were and that reversed engineering me to what aha moment I had to discover. And that's how I was boosting my baseline flow pretty much. And that until a point where I did enough where my immune system got so much stronger. So there's so much here. Um, I think that I have one more question for you and, you know, for, for people listening, because I think this is really important is, you know, how, how would you recommend for, you know, the individual kind of sitting in that cubicle, working that nine to five job, you know, to make a living, kind of living that life to access their flow? Does that, does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like, how, like, can, how, can, how can we, <laughs> you know, like you've been through this, you've had incredible experiences you know, you've been you've been around the world interacting with teachers that helped you access all these different tools. You've been building frameworks. You interacted with hundreds of artists. Like your your individual experiences is, is, I think, unique, and all of our experiences are unique. However, how can others tap into what you're what you're? I would say describing. Here? Well, the same way I started my journey, which was just learning how fear works, be having the inquiry mind of learning how fear works was foundational to everything else. And that's what led me on, led me to everything else. So like learning about how to exercise your ability to trust with awareness. Mm. Um, Do you trust everyone that you come into contact with as, as, a, as just a baseline? Yeah. You know, I don't, it's not even whether I trust anyone or not trust it. I actually just trust, I don't know if you want to call it the universe source, whatever. And I trust that I, whatever is going to happen to me, I'm covered and protected in my best interest to protect and serve my intentions. So then it takes the pressure off trusting people, mm. you know, to a higher state because people are limited in their perception. So why would I limit my trust to a limited perceived or, or a being with limited perception? Right. So I would kind of move up the scale and say, okay, I'm going to trust this system, mm. you know, and you know, it's a higher vantage point up here mm. than these systems down here. And so I give people the benefit of the doubt and I move through and, you know, you could change people. Like if you trust somebody, mm. you could shift their energy completely and they become trustworthy when traditionally they may not be. Mm. So also that I'm aware, you know, I you know, run multiple businesses and, you know, and businesses are all about managing people. So I understand, you know, when I look at someone, I try to see where they're coming from. And, you know, one of the tools is where are the Maslow's hierarchy are they, mm. you know, 
you know, they're in survival or they're in safety or then, you know, it's so funny that you bring up Maslow's hierarchy because earlier you said something that reminded me of Chip Conley and Chip wrote peak performance and it's about Matt. It's basically he redefined Maslow on management. Uh Uh-huh. uh, Yeah. I mean, that's essentially, I mean, you feel what serves their immediate need and you focus them, you focus on that conversation or focus that, you know, or under just even understanding that Mm -hmm. you, you can then, it all goes back to just understanding. If you have enough curiosity to understand the other person, like in cultures, cultures are all, all the problems and the wars come up because of this, in most cases, not all cases, but because there's not enough depth of understanding the other person's culture or what their mm-hmm. real needs are. Because most times you'll find out that there's probably an easy compromise that serves both people. you know. And if you don't mm-hmm. inquire enough to learn what that is, then you'll never get there. And then the conflict arises because people get stuck in, you know, in their differences. You know, and so, so to access flow, you know, if, if we don't so have here, a creative pursuit. Yeah. Say. Yeah. So here, here's how I did it. I would put my stuff, myself in places of what would be, I consider danger or things that put me in fear states, figure out what I was feeling and thinking during those times. And then when I was not in a fear state, fill out what I was thinking and feeling those times, figure out what the difference was between the two and, if, and then try to do enough of those to understand why. And once I did enough of those, I mean, I swam with sharks, I jumped out of planes, I you know, rock climbed, I <laughs> solo, you know, bungee jumped, I did all sorts of things on the physical layer. Oh, we could talk for like five hours. Yeah, <laughs> just so to figure much. out why, what I was thinking before and why, what I was afraid of. And then, you know, and then I found these patterns. Mm. There's just patterns. And when I realized, oh, all these things I'm thinking of, what if? You know, it's like one of those patterns, you know, like, and then, then it started moving into different things. Relationships, which are more, you know, not outward physical death, you know, thing. It's more about, you know, vulnerability yep. issues, right? Um, rejection. And, that, and, that, and that, that kind of holding as well sometimes, right? The attachment of a relationship right. where everything else can seem to change, but if a relationship changes, then it's a failure. Right. So, you know, I mean, relationships, quote, are about, relationships are usually about rejection, worth, respect, you know, these other intrinsic, internal, mm. emotional edges you know versus external edges so that was a whole nother and and by the way those are way more complicated to figure out than the external ones the external ones are easy so <laughs> the internal ones because they're very well our, we have an emotional immune system and we hide these things we put them down so we can function mm-hmm. so we got to allow them to bubble up or or be able to inquire enough to figure out where they're coming from that's what the triggers are and you know, triggers come from previous programming from when you're a kid or you know incidences and trauma that may have happened through mm-hmm. through life so so unwinding all that stuff that's where the real practice of fear and fear shedding and you know comes from so but anyway anyone that wants to like learn about flow i think the first thing you need to do is understand fear because mm-hmm. once again perception is the source of all flow and also the source of all fear and so if we, if we're afraid, we close ourselves off to flow. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if you trust or if you're open, you open yourself up to flow. Beautiful. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I appreciate this so much. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Oh, that's great.